Uh, we're going to be in Micah. We're going to be in the prophet Micah for this summer. And my hope is that you will see just the, the relevance of this prophet and his words uh, in 700 BC and how relevant they are still today. So let's get to it. If you have watched the news for any amount of time in recent days, you can agree that this world is just not the way it's supposed to be. Anyone feel that? You feel that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. We, we receive news of school shootings. Nations invading other nations. If you've lived this life long enough, you've felt it. You've felt it. We live in a broken world. Injustice, oppression, exploitation. All these things tell us that there's something about this world that is just off. There's something off about the way this world is. And if we're honest, if you're honest, you know in your heart that you are not the way that you are supposed to be either. We too easily choose greed over generosity or comfort over the needs of others. And no matter where we look, we are left to wonder, why is this world the way that it is? It's in these moments when we sense a deep longing for justice and mercy and goodness. And when we see these desires met, even in small measure, in fleeting ways, we get a glimpse of this upside-down world turned right side up. We get a glimpse. This is not a new thing. This is not a, a 21st century thing. It's a reality of the human experience from day one. Every generation that has ever lived has wrestled with this tension. Now enter Micah of Moresheth. From the latter half of 700 B.C., The meaning of Micah's name is this. It literally is a rhetorical question that asks this. Who is like Yahweh? Or who is like the Lord? Who is like God? There are two ways you can answer this question. One way is just to sense the utter transcendence of, of God and to cry out in praise. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? And this use of Micah's name points us to something good. Points us to something good. The other way to answer this question is in lament. As Micah surveyed the lay of his land in his day, he found that the world lacked anyone who exuded the character of God. The people of God were to be a blessing to the nations, but were anything but. This reality led to a cry of despair. Who is like the Lord? Who is there out there that is like the Lord? There's no one. This use of Micah's name causes us to be uncomfortable especially knowing that we too are lacking in being like the Lord. Uncomfortable and good. 
This is where Micah is going to take us for the summer. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be good. These are two places that this rhetorical question that Micah's name brings us. And this question bookends the book of Micah. We see it first at the beginning of a very uncomfortable first chapter that we're going to get to in a minute. We see it at the beginning in the form of Micah's name. And then we see it at the end of the book when the question is stated explicitly in praise to God. So uncomfortable but good. This is where we're going this summer. Buckle up. I hope you're ready. This book is not your typical feel-good summer read. But Micah addresses sin. He pronounces judgment. You will be uncomfortable at first, but it will bring you to the throne of grace, to the goodness of God, and to the praise of his name. So let's get started. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 1. I invite you to stand with me if you are able, out of reverence for God's word, and follow along with me as I read. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple... For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good. Because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. 
harness the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The house of Exib shall be, deceitful, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mersha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle. For they shall go from you into exile. Pray with me. Lord, this is your word. Your word is uncomfortable and good. God, I pray that your word would be powerful and effective to train us for righteousness this morning, to confront the idols of our hearts, to show us the seriousness with which you take sin. Father, may we see afresh the grace of God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for your spirit. May your spirit open our eyes to see the treasure before us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So this first chapter presents something of a a court drama, a divine court drama. Verse 2 is a summons, a summons to all the peoples of the earth to witness the trial of Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria and Jerusalem were the capital cities of of the, uh, the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This also serves to put the nations of the world on notice that one day they too will have to give an account to the Lord of heaven and earth. Verses 3 and 4 portray the transcendent Lord bringing his soon-to-come judgment. Verse 5 is the, the accusation levied against Jerusalem and Samaria. And the sentence is given against Samaria in verses 6 and 7. In verses 8 and 9 show the prophet Micah weeping that the fate of Samaria is coming to Jerusalem as well. During Micah's ministry, he would see the fall of Samaria to the Assyrian army. And then by the end of his ministry, he, he nearly sees the fall of Jerusalem as well to the Assyrians but not quite. In the rest of this chapter, verses 10 to 16, there's, there's this list of imperatives to various cities in Judah to ready themselves for the impending coming judgment. Now, if you came to church today for a feel-good sermon, I'm sorry. Stay with me, though, because I believe this will ultimately be for the good of your souls. I wouldn't do it otherwise. This is the word of God. It is good and useful for training us for righteousness and for good works. And may the Lord give us eyes to really see the treasure here before us 
uh, even in Micah chapter 1. I've got three points, three themes really that I want to tease out of this first chapter for our good and for God's glory. And they are this, sin, judgment, and lament. Sin, judgment, and lament. So let's get to it. First, what is the sin of Israel and Judah? What is it? Verse 7 makes this quite clear that their sin is idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is when you give your ultimate allegiance and affections to someone or something other than God. It's choosing to seek happiness in other things or in other people besides God. This was an agrarian society that Micah lived in. All the neighboring pagan nations made sacrifices to all sorts of gods because they were beneficial for their livelihood. Uh, to, for, to have a good crop, right? That was, that was very important. And so they sacrificed uh, to gods of the sun, gods of rain, gods of the harvest and fertility. They wanted to be successful. They wanted to be prosperous. And so why not throw a little tribute to some of these other gods who are really no gods at all? But why not? Just to get a little edge in the competition, in the marketplace. Because they wanted to be comfortable. They wanted to uh, be prosperous so much that they would compromise their worship of the one true God. Idolatry is what is really at the heart of all sin. Idolatry feeds on our desires to, to develop our identity in the way that we want. Or to have security and comfort. And so we give ourselves to false promises of the world in hopes that they will satisfy the longings, the deep longings of our hearts. What it comes down to is that we put our trust in things other than God to make us happy. Whether it's pursuing a career, nothing wrong with that. But is it so important to you that you're willing to compromise your values and your faith? Doing whatever it takes to amass wealth without any thought of what pleases the Lord. For families, youth sports is a big one. Now I'm all for sports and kids playing sports, uh, but it can become an idol in itself. When youth sports keeps you for extended periods of time from the fellowship. By the way, parents, I don't know the official stat on this, but it's something like this. Less than 1% of all kids will grow up to be a professional athlete, but 100% of all kids will stand before God one day. Where does it make sense to invest? Maybe you're pursuing relationships that don't please the Lord, but that person really makes you feel special. So it's got to be okay. Maybe you cope with stress by running to sex, pornography, or drugs. What we are really after is rest for our weary souls, but we so often turn to these things for rest 
that will only further damage our souls. When we substitute other things for God in our hearts to make us happy, the natural result will be injustice, exploitation, and oppression. Because these things will never ultimately satisfy They leave us wanting. And our sin just causes us to double down even more to please the insatiable desires of our broken hearts. C.S. Lewis describes this well in Mere Christianity. He says, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Now the people of Micah's day wouldn't say that they abandoned the Lord altogether. They still wanted the benefits of worshiping the Lord but they also wanted the benefits of worshiping these other gods too. Tim Keller warns against this danger when he writes this The greatest danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. Are you asking God to coexist with any idols in your heart? This is a subtle danger because you can get to a point where your sin becomes comfortable and manageable. Almost like a loyal pet. The deception is that you may feel that you have mastery over it or that it's not a big deal or that it's under your control. But the reality is that the idols make you the pet. And it is a big deal because your idols will ultimately shipwreck your soul. This means that it is very possible for you to be born into a godly family, to do all of the right rituals, and to still be so lost in idol worship that you may never have a real relationship with God at all. Sobering. Verse 5 tells us that the sin of idolatry is what brings God's judgment. This is the next theme in our courtroom drama, judgment. One thing that Micah chapter 1 makes clear through the pronouncement of God's judgment against Israel and Judah is that God takes sin seriously. He will not tolerate any rivals. The imagery of judgment in verses 3 and 4 is sobering and awesome. The Lord departs from his heavenly temple and comes down. Notice how this is a condescension. He comes down to tread on the high places of the earth. Notice the contrast how transcendent the Lord is. He comes down to the high places of the earth. He he, he, uh, the, the high and lofty mountains, they melt under him. They melt under him. Samaria, a once populous city, will be a heap, uninhabited. 
a place for planting vineyards. And verse 7 shows the undoing and the reversal of their idolatry. The Lord will break their carved images to pieces, reducing them to the elements from which they were formed in the first place and returning them to the place from which they came. It's a reversal of this, this idolatrous practice. And this happened in Micah's day as he witnessed the fall of Samaria to the Assyrian army. Verses 10 to 14 are, are sobering indictments against the remaining cities of Judah. This is really a fascinating section that is lost to us when we read this in English. The judgments against these cities are all word plays. They're clever word plays with the meanings of each city name. And I'll give you a few examples. I won't go through all of them. But Bethlehem in verse 10 literally means house of dust. And so the indictment is that the house of dust will roll in the dust. Schaefer in verse 11 means beauty. But they will pass into exile and nakedness and shame. A city of beauty reduced to shame. Verse 12, Jerusalem means city of peace. But we're told that disaster and unrest will come to the city of peace. And then verse 15, we'll skip down, depicts just how bad things will get. The glory of Israel, which is a clear reference to the king of Israel. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Now you might remember Adullam. Adullam was the cave where David fled to in hiding from Saul when Saul was seeking to take his life. And we're, we're seeing this here again. The king will be driven underground and into hiding. Chapter 1 ends with a picture of mourning as their children are taken into exile. Now let's stop here for a moment and just acknowledge something that people feel. Many have a hard time with the Old Testament because God just seems so angry. Why is he so angry all the time? Many prefer the loving God of the New Testament. But the truth is, is that there is only one God and he never changes. So this brings us face to face with an important question. How do we reconcile the anger of God with the love of God? How do we do that? This is a question that is really pressed into our faces here in Micah chapter 1. How do we reconcile the anger of God with the love of God? We love to talk about God's mercy and his grace and his love and his forgiveness, but not so much about his anger and judgment. I don't see too many t-shirts out there highlighting those attributes, but it's the same God who displays them. How are we to make sense of this? Let me, let me tell you the best way I think we can resolve this, and I'll give you some examples. Here we go. We must understand that anger is not the opposite of love. Instead, we must understand that anger flows out of love. Anger flows out of love. Rebecca Pippert, uh, author, explains that all loving persons are sometimes filled with anger. 
Not despite their love, but because of their love. Here's an example. Verse 7 alludes to this. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Imagine how a cheating spouse would feel when they learn of the infidelity of their partner. They're angry, but they're angry because they love. Their anger is a righteous jealousy that flows from their love for their spouse. I don't want to see my wife with another man. That makes me angry. But it makes me angry because I love. It makes me angry because I love. When understood in this way, sin is not breaking some impersonal, arbitrary code or or rules. It's offending a person. The adultery of a spouse cuts deep to the heart of the other spouse. So your idolatry cuts deep to the heart of God. His anger is a righteous jealousy that flows from his love for you. Here's another example. How would you feel if you learned that someone you loved was addicted to drugs? A sibling, a parent, a child, a close friend. You can see how it's ruining their life and destroying them. Now what if you were to confront this person about their addiction and they tell you, hey, listen, it's no big deal. I've got it under control. Do you walk away and leave them alone? Hey, you do you. That's good. No, sorry. Sorry, I tried to interject there. Uh, no, love causes you to respond. Love causes you to respond. You might get angry, but not because you hate the person, but because you care, because you love them. Here's how Rebecca Pipper explains this principle. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Love destroys that which destroys the beloved. Sin and idolatry are not for you. They are not on your side. They do not have your best interests in mind. They are against you and will ultimately destroy you. Remember, God lovingly made you in his image. And sin and idolatry warps and distorts that God-given image. It damages you. It harms you. Think about this this concept positively. When we meditate on God's word, we are shaped by it. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, Paul says in Romans 12. And this is, the, this is the idea. We are never not shaped by something. If you're not being shaped by God and by his word, something else is shaping you. And it's not into God's image. Whatever it is that captivates your heart, whatever it is that you delight in and meditate on, whatever that thing is, it is shaping you and making you into its image. Sin and idolatry will warp and distort you and will ultimately lead to your destruction. Love detests what destroys the beloved. And this is why the judgment of the Lord 
in a way, it serves as a wake-up call for the people of God to abandon their idols, to return to the true and only lover of their souls. The Lord's judgment is uncomfortable, but it's far better than the alternative. Being left to ourselves and to sure destruction. Judgment is the cause for lament. And this is the final point, the final theme, lament. In verses 8 and 9, Micah enters the courtroom as one who laments. He wails. He mourns. He identifies with the shame of his people by going about stripped and naked. However, there's nothing else beyond that that Micah can do to change the circumstances of his people. He's helpless to bring about any form of rescue. Any allusions to salvation, to restoration here in chapter 1 are are meager. But when we look at the bigger picture of the Bible, we know that there is another advocate that enters the courtroom with, truly with, the power to rescue and to restore. Someone who, unlike Micah, is able to intercede. Jesus. Jesus came to earth. He wept. He wept for his people, knowing the coming judgment that was to come. Jesus was stripped naked, bearing the shame of our sin, our idolatry, so that we would be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus was rejected on the cross so that we would be fully accepted by the Father. Jesus absorbed the judgment of God for the sins of his people so that we can be free to love God. Only Jesus rose from the grave that we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus alone can free us from slavery to empty promises of idolatry and only Jesus can satisfy every longing of the human soul. Only Jesus. And we have the benefit on this side of redemptive history of knowing what Micah didn't see clearly then but was coming. Jesus. Micah's name asks, who is the Lord? And it's Jesus who enters the courtroom as the true and good answer, the only true and good answer to that question, who is like the Lord? If you've never come to Jesus to have your sins forgiven, come to him today. Lay down your idols and come. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which you must be saved. If you're a follower of Christ and you're messing around with sin and idolatry, you've got to take it seriously. It's warping you. It's distorting you. It's shaping you into its own image and not into the image of the Lord. And that grieves him. That breaks his heart. And there may be some uncomfortable times coming in the days ahead, for the purpose of wrenching those idols from your hands, that you might have life to the full in Jesus. So 
I leave that to you to wrestle with that. Are there idols in your heart that you're asking the Lord to coexist with? Let's take our sin seriously. Let's take our idolatry seriously and repent as needed and go back to the only true lover of our souls who has our best interests in mind. Our idols don't. Our sin doesn't. We have an enemy that wants to destroy us, but we have a good and loving father who's made us in his image and loves us and wants to give us life abundantly. Let's run to that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this time in in Micah 1, these sobering reminders of how seriously you treat sin. God, we thank you that your, your judgment, your anger is not petty. Uh, it's, not, it's not like our anger much of the time when we don't get our own way. Your anger is righteous and just and good because your anger flows out of your love for us. Your anger flows out of a reality that, that doesn't want to see the beloved harmed. So God, may we humble ourselves accordingly. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. Show us what idols may be there under the surface, subtle even, that are contending with the, the one true God for the affections of our souls. May we wrench them from our hearts and dash them to pieces that we may have a true and better love. God, we love you. We thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, to, to bear the, the full wrath of God against sin that we may be welcomed in and accepted and forgiven. There's no greater joy I pray that all here, all who are hearing my voice this morning in in person and online, that they would repent as needed, that you would show them their idolatry, show them their sin, and show them a better way, show them the true and better answer to that question, who is like the Lord? Only Jesus, only Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Thank you, Pat.